0: To Bookish at Bethel, I'm Carrie Pefley in the Philosophy Department, and I'm joined by Anne Marie
1: Koistra in the History Department.
0: And this week, our guest is Professor Marian Larson from the English Department, who will be talking to us about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Virginia Woolf, but also about Dracula. And we'll be broadly talking about issues of women in literature, gender roles, and the idea of the new woman. <laughs> So we've got Marian Larson with us this week, uh, and we always like to begin by asking our guests what exactly the students will be reading this week.
2: Yep, so uh, our focus for this upcoming week will be uh, works by two women, each of whom uh, is addressing some related and similar issues uh, in terms of uh, kind of the plight of women in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman uh, wrote the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. And I've told my students that uh, if they enjoyed Dracula and the creepy vibe and not always knowing what's happening, then they will enjoy The Yellow Wallpaper also. Um, It's a story where the narrator is a woman who is being, I use uh, air quotes pretty heavily right now, being cared for um, by her well-meaning but, but very controlling husband who uh, is concerned about the state of her nerves and um, basically locks her in a room and tells her she can't do anything and things don't go very well. Um, I'll just say that much. And uh, then we're also reading a piece by uh, A Room of One's Own, um, a piece by Virginia Woolf, who uh, wrote a couple of decades after um, Gilman and after uh, Stoker wrote Dracula, and uh, she was asked to come to um, a... the campus of a women's college, Girton College in England, to talk about issues related to uh, women and fiction. And so she kind of constructs, she she organizes her talk by constructing a story in which she has created a quasi-fictional narrator who is basically largely based on Wolf herself, kind of taking us through the story of her own thought processes around this whole issue of women who want to be writers of fiction and why is it hard? What are some of the barriers for them? Um, I think it's super interesting to think about Wolf and Gilman's story and then the ways in which women are portrayed and treated in Dracula. Um, because there are some similar questions that get raised in all three books.
1: Yeah, and I would say as the historian on the, the panel, I think I especially like the part in Wolf where she does kind of a historical analysis of why don't we know about women writers? Have they never existed? And you know she comes to this great part where she's looking at the books on the shelf and she realizes all of the history that she has has been written by men and they just are not that interested in the, what women have contributed to history. And anyway.
2: or, or, or uh, she says, yeah, I wanted to learn more about women. So I went to see, well, let's look at these books written about women. And she said these books about women, like nonfiction books, um, were written by men. And she said, wow, in so many of these books, the men are really angry. And so she says, "Uh, I don't really understand why when it comes to women as a topic, why men would be so angry. Um, And I think that's kind of interesting too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you
1: think that Bram Stoker is angry? Marian is thinking
2: I am thinking I um I I think he's thinks definitely do he doesn't portray Lucy in a very flattering way at all um he doesn't portray her in a flattering way and wow do things turn out poorly for her but uh I find it really interesting that even though the impulse of all the men in the novel um is to protect Mina over and over again. They're they're going to protect her. Yet near the end of the book, uh, she also is carrying a gun. Uh, she's got a large bore revolver. Doesn't sound like a very ladylike weapon. So she's armed. She also is the one who not only, uh, as Mark Bruce mentions in his lecture, uh, not not only does she is she the one who types up everything. Um, She also is the one who, uh, near the end, when it's clear, they all need to get a lot of rest because this is going to be a hard go um, to try to capture Dracula. She stays awake and uses her powers of organization and critical thinking Mm -hmm. and makes a plan and And it's even written up in memorandum form that she puts in her own journal. And it's like bullet points. It looks like an agenda from a business meeting. And then um, just over, anyway, I I found myself this time wondering if maybe Stoker's, Stoker is perhaps more willing, uh, surprisingly willing to allow a woman like Mina to be pretty fully herself in terms of being able to think well and use her skills and her skills are absolutely crucial in defeating dracula um and i think he allows that to happen because she does still do some traditional things like she does get married she does support her husband she does respect his privacy at least for a while and she does go ahead and have a child, uh, a child that we're told she shows great care and affection for. So I think because she doesn't push the boundaries of uh, what women are quote supposed to be like, she doesn't push those boundaries too far. Um, It seems that Stoker is pretty willing to let her be herself. All
0: right, and I sort of wondered on this reading whether or not Stoker is okay with her because she pushes the boundaries in the right ways Um, along with not too far, but also even more specifically like Lucy that the way that we're introduced to her is I told my own students, there was this show called Homestar Runner online and there was a group called teen girl squad. And one of them always said, I love every boy. And I just, that is what, that is what strikes me is so, like every time I read that first line from Lucy, oh, if only I could marry all of the boys that like me, um, that she's sort of pushing boundaries in bad ways versus Mina, who's pushing them in terms of critical thinking and knowledge and organization, that, that that's better. Well, and I
1: noticed on this reading of Dracula, that Mina becomes very religious, also. And so I feel like the whole book becomes much more crusade like in the second half of the book when they realize that killing Dracula means saving Saint Mina.
0: Right. So.
2: Well, and in fact, the other thing I noticed is I, I'm thinking about the way Jonathan Harker. Is portrayed. He he provides almost bookends to the novel. So when we are first introduced to him through his diary that he keeps while he is basically imprisoned, well, on his way to Dracula's castle and then imprisoned there, he. I know he's a man, but he's a classic damsel in distress. He's um, he's he he's he does exactly what happens in horror movies with the young woman who has something bad happened to her. He seems not able to see that something bad is about to happen. He can't solve his own problems. He's really helpless. Um, but then near the end, he is one of the fiercest warrior vampire fighters. Um, I think perhaps partly, um, motivated by his desire to save his woman. Um, So anyway, I I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, and that
1: potentially ties into your observation from Wolf, where she is asking the question, why in writing about women do men feel so angry? Because one of the things she kind of is noting is that men maybe think that they have power or they want to have power, but they realize that their hold on that power is actually fairly fragile. Mm -hmm. They have to construct stories where women are damsels in distress as a
0: way of asserting their manhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a, a strong correlation between, I think the way Stoker kind of judges the men in Dracula for trying to be protective of Mina, what happens when they cut Mina off. From knowing what's going on, from being involved, that's when Dracula gets to her. It's when the men are trying to be overprotective. And then what, what Wolf and Gilman are going, to, their own experiences, having been treated in this way by overprotective men who ended up doing much more harm um, because of how weak women were supposed supposedly.
2: Yeah. So in that regard, you could say that's one similarity across all three of these texts. Mm -hmm. that the male characters go really, really wrong when they are too protective of women, um, either out of their own fear and insecurity or out of assumptions they make about the delicate constitution of the ladies. Um, And even though there's a lot that does come across as reasonably traditional in terms of gender roles, in Dracula um, it, it still is clear that mean that the men in the novel kind of come to realize Van Helsing in particular, that they need to let Mina be who she is. And when they let her be who she is, uh, well, when they don't let her be who she is and try to protect her, they endanger her mm-hmm. as well as themselves. Um, and listen to me, I'm saying let her be who she is. Uh, which, you know, I, I think about ways in which, um, oh, especially in the yellow wallpaper, the husband of the narrator um, utterly infantilizes his wife. He assumes that she is not capable of making her own decisions about what it will look like for her to be a wife and a mother who also wants to be a writer. Um, So he makes decisions for her, um, just as we see uh, the men in Dracula making decisions for Mina, well, and for Lucy, too.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, and that, so I've been thinking about... um, the new this concept of the new woman that we see really in all three of these authors, um, and a comment that maybe you two haven't noticed, and we'll come to this in a podcast later on. But a comment that Rauschenbusch makes, right? So one of the theologians we we read this semester, where he essentially makes this this comment that part of the the dangers of of modern society and of capitalism is that women. Um, are led astray in all of these ways. And he seems to be sort of using this idea of the new woman um, to talk about how this could really badly affect um, our theological understandings and, and sort of that, that particular connection. And I know we don't really explore that a whole lot in humanities for like the, the theological connection to women, um, but it's certainly there. Well, and that ties
1: into something that Marion was reminding uh, Carrie and me about, um, about a movie that came out a few years ago and uh, a reaction to that movie by an author who, uh, the movie was Captain Marvel, right? And I did not see yep. the movie, but Captain Marvel apparently features a very strong female protagonist who fights maybe aliens in order to save the world. I'm probably mischaracterizing this. No, that's what I thought. Okay, okay. That's right. And the, the author who was writing about this and was writing from a very distinctly Christian perspective bemoaned this movie as an example of um, women stepping out of their roles and their essential differences from men. And um, well, here's a quote actually from the, um, the article, the ideology that sends Brie Larson, this is the actress who portrayed Captain Marvel, soaring fictionally, uh, uh, fictionally around outer space has sent our real daughters, mothers, and sisters, devoid of such superpowers, to war, to serve and die in place of men. And this whole piece was kind of premised on this ideology that men in their essential roles protect women. And one of the things that I remarked on with my students this morning for another class, we're reading a book called The Sea Captain's Wife, which follows the story of a woman coming from working class background in the 1840s. And one of the things that the author mentions because of the historical record is that the men in this woman's life could not protect her. They were not protectors. Her father was an economic failure. Her husband was an economic failure. And I said, I think one of the things that history can be helpful about is it helps us understand that we're romanticizing a past that never existed but I don't know. Yeah.
2: Well, I was just so the the piece that uh, Anne Marie mentioned um, was from a a blog uh, fr- a, a blog uh, called Desiring God and um, th- many of the entries on this blog, I mean a lot of them don't deal with gender issues, but when they do, they uh, assume God ordained very particular traditional ways of thinking about what men ought to be like and what women ought to be like. And they often uh, will use examples from Disney movies and fairy tales yes. to, to support that way of seeing things. And uh, a local um, Christian organization called Christians for Biblical Equality, which uh, two of its original founders used to be faculty members at Bethel back in the day, um, had the very next day posted a response. And uh, along the lines of what Professor Koyster just said about uh, the sea captain's wife that you're having students read, um, in the rejoinder, the Christians for Biblical Equality author says, well, how about if we not draw from Disney and fairy tales? How about if we look at the Bible and let's notice that there are some Uh, figures in the Bible, take Deborah, for example, mentioned in the book of Judges, who was uh, a leader, a strong leader, and in fact, even a leader, a battle leader. And there is not a single place in the whole Bible that says anything negative about her or about her leadership nor is there any suggestion that the men who lived in Israel at the time were being diminished or emasculated by her leadership. Um, And so that's not the only point that they make, but they suggest that uh, maybe we would do well to think about evidence like that also from scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I was very struck in reading the critique of the Captain Marvel movie, Um, Because the attitude portrayed by that male author sounded very much like the times when the men in Dracula say things like, oh, uh, Mina, we've got to protect you, your your delicate um, constitution or (laughs) whatever um, that we have to
1: protect you. Well, and same in the yellow wallpaper and same in maybe the true life story of Virginia Woolf.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, that that overprotection keeps these women from being who they are and not necessarily who they are as women, but just who they are. So this over sort of focus on this is how all women have to behave. This is how all men have to behave. As with, say, Jonathan Harker, who also at the beginning does not seem like a stereotypical male. But that's not to emasculate him, right? His, the way he is a hero is different.
2: Right. Well, yeah. This, that, oh, go ahead, Marian. Well, I was, I was going to bring it back to Wolf and just simply say back to the issue of, uh, you know, wh- what harm is done when rigid constructions of gender roles are implemented rigidly by people in power. What what harm is done? Well, in the yellow wallpaper, the harm that is done is that it, it seems pretty clear that the, the narrator protagonist, um, her condition gets worse and worse. Her physical, mental, emotional condition gets progressively worse because of the way the men in her life control her in Dracula. Um, I think you potentially could argue that, uh, that Lucy's fate partly happens because of the way that men try to control things. And Mina, they, they almost end up costing her life and the lives of all of the rest of them because of Mina. Um, And then, uh, oh, and then in Wolf, uh, I think it's near the very end of a room of one's own where she you know, she has spent a lot of time basically trying to say, look, being a really good writer, exercising your creative imagination and thinking well is a very hard task. There are so many barriers to doing that well, barriers that would be present for a man or a woman. But then if you add onto it the various societal barriers that many women at different times in history have faced... We shouldn't be surprised that there are few, so few women, like famous women writers um, up until a certain era. And so she's not only trying to suggest that uh, we all have missed out because of the those creative geniuses that were probably out there who never had the support and the opportunity and the encouragement to write in the way that men did but also she talks about what she describes as uh, an androgynous mind. And um, I sometimes have had students who get a little weirded out by that idea. And and I think you, I don't think that you need to be weirded out by that that idea. I think she's she's kind of trying to suggest that each of us benefits by reading the writing of people who see the world differently than we do. Um, and so it can be related to, you know, if your social position as a woman means that you tend to have certain kinds of responsibilities and t- certain ways of seeing the world, um, because you were raised to think about maleness and femaleness in a particular way, your outlook on life is going to be different than a man who similarly was raised to see things in a certain way. And so it's beneficial to read the writing of someone who sees the world differently and also in your own self-cultivation to ask, how might I expand uh, the way that I approach the world and think about the world? So if I'm, you know, quote feminine, um, and I'm very willing to use air quotes when talking about femininity as it applies to me personally, (laughs) personally, but but if I'm quote feminine in my outlook, how might my outlook change or expand if I start trying to see the world through a, quote, masculine lens um, and vice versa? I think that's a lot of what she means by an, and developing an androgynous mind. And so we all, we're all diminished when we limit ourselves or other people based on gender role expectations. Not that I care about this topic very much.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think, too, that's part of the reason why Virginia Woolf, as much as she's interested in women writers and she celebrates the women writers that are um, coming into fruition during her own era, she looks back at Shakespeare and says, this is why Shakespeare is such a great author, because he's an example of someone who clearly has this capability that you're talking about. And she encourages even the female authors to... You know, maybe write about the human experience. And I remember there was a historian who said that's part of what makes Frederick Douglass great is that even though he's writing about his particular experience, there is there are these moments even in his autobiography where you have a common human connection, and that's what makes literature so powerful. Mm-hmm. Even though you might want to express
0: the particular. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, I was just going to ask, so Marian Larson is clearly very excited about this particular topic. Mm. So other than I mean, we've talked about, well, Captain Marvel, which I suppose would be a recommendation after this, um, given the the diversity of opinions on on Captain Marvel, but what other texts or podcasts or, um, or works of literature would you suggest or thinking about all these issues.
1: Well, a second question I was thinking of while I was reading or rereading the review of Captain Marvel is, I wonder what the same author thought about Wonder Woman when it came out. Just because in some ways, Wonder Woman is kind of like a Mina character in that she is still very attracted to, is it Steve, the human Steve? I don't know, but- I don't remember, I, yeah. You know, she's she's kind of trying to skate both worlds in terms of the femininity and also warrior kind of
0: thing. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I'm getting you off track um, thinking about yeah. other. No, but you're things. also buy, buying her some time because I, you know, lambasted her with an, a slightly off-topic question.
2: Yeah. Oh, I don't know. See, uh, w- well, here's part. I, I, I'm partly filtering a lot of my thinking through what Wolf herself says, so uh, in A Room of One's Own, after talking about uh, the, the small number of women authors that we are aware of from around Shakespeare's time, mm-hmm. she then moves into, well, what about when the English novel was developing? Um, so like, uh, you know, 1700s on into the 1800s, uh, authors like Jane Austen or the Bronte sisters, for example. Um, and so part of me thinks, "Oh, of course I ought to, I ought to mention them," um, which I would, but she makes the point uh, she spends a little bit of time looking at uh, the Austin and Bronte portrayal of some of their female characters. And she said, she argues that you can see the limitations that those women authors felt. Um, and experienced because they were women living at a time when women had far fewer opportunities, especially unmarried women than women do now. And she says, look at the way that, and and she just basically says, you can see their frustration with that reality, their concern with that reality coming out kind kind of sideways here and here and there in the way they, present uh some of their fictional characters Mm -hmm. um and she says i just wonder what might uh a a charlotte bronte or a jane austen have been capable of had they not faced the limitations they did because they were women um and i think that's an interest i just think that's an interesting Mm -hmm. point
1: Well, and is it, is it true? Is my memory serving me correctly? She thought maybe that Jane Austen was the better writer. Yeah.
2: I think, yes, she does say
1: that. I think
2: she, I would agree agree with that actually, but. Well, I love Jane Eyre though. Yeah. I haven't, I just haven't read that in such a long time. Um, Related to this. I
0: just watched for the first time the Greta Gerwig, Little Women. Oh yeah, so did I. Which kind of explores that idea. And I, I remember reading Little Women when I was younger and thinking, why in the world is she marrying the professor? This is very, like, it, it doesn't fit in. And I love yeah. was sort of thinking of Greta Gerwig as Virginia Woolf, reimagining Louisa May Alcott. Yeah. The limitations of yeah. this period.
1: Yeah. So funny, because that book and the movie came up in the class that I taught this morning about the sea captain's wife. So there you go. It's apparently in the moment. Mm-hmm. It yes. mm-hmm. um, So let's see here. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, I'm not thinking of books off the top of my head, but I was thinking what I might recommend if you are sort of feeling interested by this topic is I would maybe recommend listening to some of the women singers of the 1960s and 1970s. I'm thinking, mm. go explore a little Joni Mitchell,
2: mm. go explore yeah. a little
1: Aretha Franklin, go mm. explore a little Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that is a great sort of, few, you know, 40, 50 years after Wolf. Those are powerful voices. Uh,
0: I don't know. That's, that's one recommendation. Yeah. And that that reminds me of a more, I guess, academic recommendation, uh, which is to say much less interesting and a little bit drier. But uh, Linda Nochlin in the seventies wrote an article, pretty long article called why have there been no great women artists thinking (laughs) about women in the visual arts um, and exploring exactly these ideas and essentially saying, there, there haven't been women artists, not because women haven't been good enough, but because they haven't been allowed a seat at the table. And she kind of looks at the history of Western art um, and, and thinks about women and their relationship to that.
2: Well, and that, this is uh, steering things in a tangentially related direction, but two comments. One is, in a room of one's own, I think this is in the very first chapter when uh, the the wolf character or the 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 eye, uh who is exploring um, this this the terrain at the fictional uh, conglomerate named college called Oxbridge. She's walking around campus and she's talking about various places she is excluded from, mm-hmm. and one of the things that that ends up that ends up helping her make the point, which she picks up on a couple of times after chapter one, is one reason why uh, perhaps there have not been as many great women authors in the British literature tradition is because women have been excluded from that tradition. sometimes deliberately like no you can't use this library <laughs> or you can't be uh, an enrolled student at this university for example um and then the other thing that this made me thinking of, think about speaking of tradition i uh, i teach japanese lit um when uh when i do world lit and one thing i find fascinating is that from the earliest days of the tradition, the literary tradition in Japan, some of the most prominent, highly regarded figures are women. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to Japan's Teon period, which is kind of like the, if you think of like the golden age of Athens, that's what the Heian period is in Japan. And so that's like 800 to about 1200 AD. And at the height of that, so around 1000 AD, um, two of the most famous, if you were to ask anyone in Japan who has who has any level of education, hey, uh, who are some of the most important authors from that period? And, and you wouldn't say the most important male authors or female authors, just the most important authors. Um, really good chance that the two top names that would be listed uh, would be Murasaki Shikibu, who wrote uh, arguably arguably kind of the first novel or at least the first long work of fiction called the tale of Genji and say Shana who wrote a really, really fascinating and beautiful and funny, um, journal that has a lot of her reflections on and poetry that she wrote about her time in the Imperial court at the capital city of Kyoto. Um, and so the, uh, japan at the time was very patriarchal women and and so like there's a lot of uh societal rights that women did not have but there was something about the what was in the cultural water (laughs) that uh that just seemed to encourage men and women um to really care about beauty and care about the arts including literary arts so anyway i just find that fascinating
1: um I am now dying to
2: ask what's on your nightstand, Marian Larson. Uh, uh, and for once I actually wrote it down because I, uh, I'm terrible at, remem- at remembering book, t- book titles when I'm in the midst of reading it. So the book I'm reading with my eyes right now, uh, this is what's actually literally on my nightstand is a collection of short stories called exhalation by Ted Chang. Um, Chang is C H I A N G and Ted Chang uh, was trained as a computer science, computer scientist. And I think he still does some IT work, but then he's been writing since he was in high school. This is his second published collection of short stories. The film Arrival with Amy Adams that came out a couple of years ago is based on one of the short stories from his previous collection. Um, and so it, he, most of his stories are, they're all interesting thought experiments um, around that lead to questions around like uh, what are, what are stories? What are they for? Um, How do we construct our sense of self? Um, And he uses, sometimes uses sci-fi as a way into this. And then the book I'm listening to right now, is called "A uh, Stranger in the Shogun's City" by Amy Stanley. It's uh, a work of nonfiction that is written in such a way that you feel like you are following a really interesting story. And so, uh, there's a woman from a, uh, a the family of a prominent Buddhist priest who uh, lived. She lived in the early early to mid-1800s, which was really close to a time of dramatic change in Japan. And she, uh, she wrote tons of letters uh, to friends and family. Most of, most of these letters still exist, so a lot of this uh, book is based on her experience, and she becomes kind of a window into what did this time period in Japan look like? And it's super well-written and really interesting.
1: Nice. Carrie, what's on your nightstand?
0: So um, one of them is the same book as uh, one of the same books from last week, except for I now know the author's name. So it's Hiking with Nietzsche, um, which is written by John Kage, K-A-A-G. And he's a philosophy professor, uh, but this is a, a book about, Nietzsche and the Romantics and hiking through the Alps. Super interesting. And then I'm also reading White Fragility because there's a lot of people talking about it and I hadn't read it. So um, I've got some hiking with Nietzsche and some social justice stuff on my nightstand. Mm. Both good. Very different. Anne-Marie, what are you reading? I know.
1: really good. I'm gonna, fe- I'm gonna follow the heady person on the, uh, the panel here. Uh, I, I am actually though um, reading something that we talked about many, many moons ago and maybe it was even a Marian Larson suggestion and it's Silence by uh, uh, Japanese author. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: I teach that book in world lit.
1: Yeah, so I just started it. It's So far very interesting um, and I'll keep
0: you posted. Yeah, I'm excited, I'm excited to hear your reaction.
1: Great. Well, thanks for joining us on Bookish at Bethel.